On Easter Sunday, the year 362, a young preacher named Gregory stood before the church in his hometown of Nazianzus, modern-day Turkey, to preach a sermon and to offer an apology. Uh, See, the Christmas before, 361, the bishop of Nazianzus, who happened to be Gregory's father, ordained him against his will to the ministry. And uh, instead of humbly taking on that task, Gregory packed his bags and fled for the coast, the Black Sea, and the Roman province of Pontus, in the northern part of today's Turkey. And for six months, he wrestled with the call to be a pastor. But on Easter Sunday, 362, he was back where he was supposed to be, standing before God's people, trying to give some kind of explanation for being absent without leave, for abandoning his post, for running away after he'd been ordained. You could read it. It's called Oration Number 2 on his flight to Pontus. Uh, it's an important little sermon. But this is one thing that jumps out to me from it. This is what he said. I did not, nor do I now, think myself qualified to rule a flock or herd or to have authority over the souls of men. In other words, Gregory didn't feel cut out to be a pastor. And uh, I can surely understand where he was coming from. You know, we think about the men and women from the pages of church history, or like, like Mike was praying, the men and women who have invested in us. Um, they are giants in the faith. You know, my grandmother, I remember the way she prayed. You know, and things like that about these people jump out to us. And when we compare ourselves next to them, it's hard to imagine that God could use a normal person like me for any good thing in his kingdom. But our passage this morning tells us that's exactly the case. Every Christian has received gifts from Jesus meant to build up the body so that we achieve mature manhood. Our sermon in the sentence today, if you've got your little weekly discipleship guide, you'll see it up there at the top. It says this, Every Christian has the resources to promote unity in the church. And as we jump in, I, I want to just go a step further and make it personal. Not every Christian, but you have an indispensable part to play in God's work of making our church all that we're supposed to be. And so I hope by the time we're done this morning, maybe like Gregory, you'll commit yourself to using what little gifts we have to build the body. Right, so before we get in there, though, let me give you some backstory. If you're with us for the first time in a while, maybe you don't know where we are. We're kind of in the middle of Ephesians, and it's an important chapter. Uh, the first 16 verses of chapter 4 are really the hinge between the first half of his letter, which deals with the exalted theology, the doctrinal truth, that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world, uh, adopted us into his family, he raised us with Christ, made us alive with Christ, seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. And all of that doctrine matters. Theology is practical, and all of our practice is theological. And the hinge to it all is that we're supposed to live up to the standard, live worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Last week, we saw that that calling means that each one of us is responsible for maintaining unity in the church. 
And now in verses in 7 through 16, Paul does something different. Last week we saw the unity of the church. But now Paul's adjusting our focus from the forest to the trees, to the individuals within that unity. He wants us to know that each one of us do not disappear into the thing called the church, but each of us has been given a gift. So let's see this here in verses 7 through 10, how Jesus has given you gifts. Paul says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. We closed down our passage last week by seeing the sevenfold oneness of the church. One spirit, one body, one hope to which you've been called, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one body. We had all of this drawn together in the oneness. But now Paul says to each one of us individually, God has given grace. The church is like a kaleidoscope or a patchwork quilt that individually offers up this multifaceted beauty of what God has designed. Each man and woman, each Christian, has received grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now what Paul does here in verse 7 is confusing because he uses the same word but in a different way. We've already talked about how essential grace is to our salvation, to what God has done for us in Christ. Paul said back in chapter 1, verse 5, that uh, the Father predestined us to adoption through Jesus according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And in chapter 2, Paul told him, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not the result of works, so that none may boast. I mean, we've emphasized that grace is God's disposition his attitude towards us. It's not based on anything we've done to earn it, but rather it's an overflow of his nature and character, what some people call his unmerited favor. But in verse 7, grace has a different flavor. It's not so much the disposition, but the exceptional effect that's produced by that disposition. It's what the New Living Translation calls a special gift. And Paul's used this word in chapter 3, to describe his own calling to be an apostle and preacher and teacher. Look at this with me. This is Ephesians 3, 7. And I want you to listen up for grace in this passage. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. See, according to Paul, God had called and equipped him with a special grace, a grace to be an apostle, a minister, and a preacher. And this understanding of grace as a gift, the effect of the grace of disposition, the, the gift... Uh, is consistent with Paul's other letters. Uh, you can see this in Romans 12, verse 6, where Paul says, having gifts that differ 
according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And Peter also talked this way in 1 Peter 4. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. I hope you get the point. Maybe I've belabored it. But when Paul says that grace has been given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, he's not talking about God's grace, the disposition, the favor that we receive through, him, through Christ, not on the basis of what we've done, but just as that overflow of his character. Every Christian receives the same grace. We're all saved by grace through faith. But there's a distinguishing factor between me and you. It's that for some reason, the Lord Jesus has sovereignly decided to give you particular gifts and abilities that he didn't see fit to give me. You're equipped with a different kind of grace than I am. And Paul says this gifting is a result of Christ's exaltation and enthronement over all things. You know, sometimes it seems like Paul gets turned around in his argument, and we have a hard time following the logic of what he's saying. And in verses 8 through 10, that's definitely what happens. He quotes from Psalm 68, 18. But if you look there, Psalm 68, 18, you're going to see that Paul adjusts the words just a little bit to make his point even more strongly. Originally, Psalm 68 was what some people have called a victory ode. It was a song that was used to celebrate the king of Israel as he uh, celebrated victory over his enemies. The image portrayed, even in the little verse we read uh, from Psalm 68, 18, the image is of this victorious leader returning into town with all of the captives, his prisoners of war, in chains behind him, parading them through the streets so that everybody sees how he has conquered his foes. According to Paul, this image perfectly fits Jesus. Paul says that in his incarnation, Jesus descended from heaven to earth. He came from heaven to earth. We know the song. You know this. He descended from heaven to earth in humility, taking on human flesh. And Paul says in Philippians 2, he became obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. But that wasn't the end. He didn't just descend, he also ascended. Paul talked about this in Ephesians 1 verse 20. He said that after his death, the Father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And get this, has given him the name that's above every name, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul's already told the Ephesians, Jesus is ruling and reigning on his throne in heaven. But now, he tells them, like any good king, Jesus doesn't just enjoy the riches of his kingdom for himself. Instead, he shares the wealth. He shares his bounty of victory with his people. I mean, we remember all the way back to the first Sunday in this sermon series, back in Ephesians 1, 1 through 3, that every blessing that we receive from God comes to us through Christ. We saw some of those the next week, that we're blessed in him, chosen in him, loved in him. Chapter 2, we saw that we're alive with him, raised with him, seated with him, that we all, people from various backgrounds, are united in him. Right? Every blessing is ours in Christ. And now Paul tells us that this blessing extends beyond our st standing and relationship with God, but it goes even to the gifts 
that we've received from him. We've received these spiritual gifts as a result of his exaltation. And so this morning, maybe you feel like Gregory did, that you're unworthy or unable to serve God. But I hope you know that's the way you feel about yourself. The risen and reigning Lord needs to have a word with you. That he has shared with you from the measure of his gift. He has given you a sovereignly determined gift. That means there are no unexceptional Christians. No ungifted Christians. No unimportant people in the church. We may not feel that we've attained to the heights of the men and women, the evangelists, the preachers, the Sunday school teachers who've invested in us. But according to Paul, each one of us has received grace from the measure of Christ's gift. But what for? Right, that's good. Jesus has given us gifts. But what's the purpose of those gifts? Well, second thing we need to see is that your gifts are for ministry in the church. This is verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Your gifts are for ministry in the body of Christ. So you haven't demonstrated that these spiritual gifts come to us from the ascended Lord. Paul now enumerates some of those gifts. He names five. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And right away we understand this is not an exhaustive list of the spiritual gifts that God gives. You could look at the other places, for example, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. You can compare it with what the list we have here in Ephesians 4, and you would notice two things. One, there are gifts in each list that are not found in the other lists. And two, none of the lists is identical. That tells us that what those lists are at best are guideposts in showing us the kinds of things that Jesus has gifted his people with. They're not, they're not exhaustive. And they're not definitive. Furthermore, the, the list in Ephesians is weird. Because while you'll read about, for example, gifts like helps or healing or tongues, stuff like that in 1 Corinthians 12, you don't see anything like that here. Instead, you have people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. This is like a sub-list, a sub-grouping of the bigger list of spiritual gifts. These are leaders who have been tasked with this, the calling, the, the task of proclaiming the truth of God's word to the church. And so we can walk through these real quickly and, and see the interesting and unique facets of each gifting. First, we see the apostles. Now, Paul's readers would have known Paul to be an apostle. He identified himself that way in Ephesians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's an apostle. No denying that. But they also would have known a larger group of people called the apostles. Right? We see these apostles in Luke chapter 6 when Jesus hand-selects 12 men to come with him. And Luke tells us, and he named them apostles. But after Jesus' ascension, this group expands. Right? We know Judas is separated from among the apostles. And the apostles that remain vote to bring a new guy in. 
Later, Paul is made an apostle. Later, James, Jesus' half-brother, is named among the apostles. And there are others. So you could distinguish between maybe the big A apostle that was hand-selected by Jesus and the little A apostles. But in either case, this gifting that Paul is talking about looks the same. Apostles were the authoritative preachers of the gospel who took the message of Jesus to new places. Right? So there's two elements to that. They preach the gospel and they plant churches. And though they traveled from place to place, these apostles continued to exert some kind of authority over the churches they planted. That's why Paul could sit down in a jail cell and write to the church in Colossae or the church in Ephesus. Or why Peter could write letters to his churches. Why James could write letters to his churches. Why John could write letters to his churches. These apostles preached the word authoritatively, established churches, and continued to exert some kind of direction and authority over what those churches did. The second gift Paul identifies is prophets. And these were individuals who were active in the early church, receiving revelation from the Holy Spirit, direct knowledge of what God is saying and doing, and then proclaiming it for all the church to align their lives to that. Luke describes some of these apostles, I mean, sorry, prophets, in Acts chapter 13, in Syrian Antioch. He says there were five prophets and teachers, and Paul was among them. Together with the apostles, these prophets were what Paul calls in Ephesians 2.20, the foundation on which God is building his church, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, what we sang about earlier, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. God was laying the church's foundation on his word. The apostles were the authoritative proclaimers of the gospel. The prophets were receiving direct revelation from God and communicating it with authority to the people of God. God was building his church on the gifts of these apostles and prophets. But over time, as something called the New Testament came to be agreed upon, and people recognized that certain letters had special authority. They had evidence of being inspired by the Spirit. The apostles and the prophets start to drift into the background. But their tasks of planting churches and preaching the Word didn't disappear with them. Instead, other people took up those tasks, some even operative in the New Testament itself, like the evangelists who were gifted by God to the, to the church to carry the apostles' task of planting churches into the future, taking the gospel to new places. There's really only two times in the New Testament where you see the person of an evangelist described. Um, one is Philip. It's described as the evangelist. And the other time, Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And so they didn't have the same kind of authority, but they were there in the background, spreading the gospel outside the church to people who had never heard it before. And when people, by God's grace, had their eyes open to the truth about Jesus and accepted him as Savior, these new believers needed somebody to take them by the hand and show them the next way to go. And that's where the shepherds and teachers come in. Shepherds are those who are gifted to the church to care for individuals, the sheep, and to exercise oversight over the group, the flock. Uh, Peter told the elders in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, to shepherd the flock of God that's among you, willingly, not under compulsion. And actually, before his imprisonment, before Paul would have written this letter, he met with the overseers of the church in Ephesus uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean, a town called Miletus. 
And this is what he charged them. Acts 20, 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Shepherds look after individuals, knowing what to say and do in any given moment, and exert some oversight over the flock. And of course, teachers are those who are gifted by God to instruct others in the truth and help them apply it to their lives. Now these five gifts are not offices. Paul didn't say, and God gave the church deacons, or God gave the church overseers, what he talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He doesn't say that. Instead he says he gave these gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And surely there's overlap between the offices and the gifts. But I want you to know that not every teacher is a pastor. Not every shepherd is a pastor. I have been shepherded and taught by many of you over the last year. And I thank God for that gift that's working toward me in my life. But these five gifts are important because they're distinguished from the rest of the saints. Did you see that? He gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and te teachers to equip the saints. He's got two groups. That's because though the New Testament doesn't present a hierarchy of believers, I don't believe the New Testament shows us anything like a clergy and laity distinction. We're all one in Christ, gifted differently. The New Testament does present to us leaders and followers. And that's what these five people are. They're leaders who lead in Jesus' own example, becoming a servant to all, to preach the word and spread the gospel on the face of the earth so people from every nation, tribe, and language come to see Jesus for who he is and are built up into maturity in him. So, these five gifts were given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And this continues the metaphor we've already seen in Ephesians 2.20. When, when Paul says that Jesus is building his church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, he then comes to chapter 4, and he says these five gifts equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And this gives me a ton of confidence. And Jesus looked at Peter in the face after Peter professed his faith in him, said, you are the Son of God. Jesus said, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And we don't have to get into the debate about whether Peter's the rock or what. It doesn't matter. What's important is Jesus says, I will build my church. And the comfort I find from that, the encouragement that that is to me, is that we don't have to wonder how Jesus intends to build his church. Paul tells us right here in Ephesians 4 that Jesus intends to build his church as leaders proclaim the word of God and share the gospel with people who have never heard. And those new Christians come in and are equipped to do the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. Jesus' plan to build his church is you. You using the gifts that he has sovereignly given you. Say, hey, I want you to be gifted this way and you to be gifted this way. And when each of us, like verse 16 says, when each of us is doing our part as working properly, we are participating in Jesus building his church. But what exactly does that look like? Right, we know, okay, Jesus has given you gifts. He's given you gifts to build his body. But what does it mean to build his body? Well, that's what Paul says in verses 13 through 16. Building the body means attaining maturity 
and unity in Christ. Look there with me, verse 13. Paul says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Jesus gave you gifts to build His body, which will in turn help us to attain to maturity and unity in Christ. I mean, last week we saw the unity of the Spirit, that we are responsible for maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. Here in verse, what is this, 13 or 14, Paul says that we're to, to pursue the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God. This unity of faith is not some kind of doctrinal uniformity, but it's a shared trust that each one of us has in Jesus, that we come to see that He is the solid rock on which we stand. When everything else gives way, he is all my hope and stay. So we trust wholly in him. That's the faith he's talking about. And we want to come to a unity of the faith where each one of us is hanging on with dear life to Jesus. But he also says it's the knowledge of the Son of God that we're aiming for. Maybe you remember a few weeks ago that Paul prayed a prayer for the Ephesians, that they would know the love of God which surpasses all the heights and depths and breadths. It goes beyond anything you could even fathom. Paul says that's the goal. That building up the body means attaining to that full knowledge of who Jesus is. Not doctrinally, head knowledge, but personal and experiential, lived out knowledge. Where we know who Jesus is in the real situations of our lives. And Paul says we get there when every Christian in the body is using their gifts in the right way. But as you use your gifts, and I use my gifts, day by day, moment by moment, a little bit at a time, we're growing up to this unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Paul also described this unity as maturing to the full and complete standard of Christ. That's the way the New Living Translation puts it. The maturing to the full and complete standard of Christ. And before, Paul's been talking about this building metaphor. Foundation, brick on top of a brick. Each one of us doing our part to build up the body of Christ. But he switches his metaphor to the normal growth of the human body. And back in Ephesians 2.16, he, he told the church, he said that uh, he has brought both Jew and Gentile together to make one man in his body. And so it's almost like there is a new human being floating around here in the world called the church. And as it stands right now, it's in its infancy, its immaturity. And apparently, it's always in danger of being a man-child, experiencing prolonged adolescence, never growing up to take responsibility or ownership, failing to launch. But Paul says that's not the target. We need to leave behind immaturity and grow to maturity. And this is a, a pervasive problem in the New Testament. It is, it is today. We're going to talk about it in a second. The author of the letter to the Hebrews knew it was the case for his church, this prolonged adolescence, this immaturity, infancy. He said in Hebrews 5.12, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, there they are again, teachers, 
You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have had, I love this, their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish between what is good and evil. I love that. You don't find words like that in the world's literature. That's the word of God, isn't it? It shows itself to be. Those who have their powers of discernment trained how? By constant practice to distinguish between what is good and evil. You want to bodybuild? You don't go to the gym one time and lose your quarantine 15. You got to, by constant practice, have y'all heard about that? The quarantine 15? Apparently, 75% of America has gained like 15 pounds in the past four months, which is crazy. That's just crazy. Um, but you want to lose your weight? You don't go one time. It's by constant practice that you train. Oh, we need to move off of this because this isn't the main point. Because what Paul is worried about in Ephesians 4.14 is that we leave behind the infancy, the spiritual milk, that we grow into maturity in Christ. See, the infancy, it's cute when it's a baby. You know, human babies are cute. They're sweet. You tickle their chin and they laugh. You stand them up and bounce them around and it's nice. But when that baby is a Christian who remains gullible, defenseless, unable to discern between right and wrong, you got problems. An immature Christian is not a cute thing. It's a dangerous thing. See, spiritual infants are unable to recognize the schemes of false teachers and charlatans who, unlike the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers who live to make the Word of God known and to see new people come to Jesus, these charlatans see the church as an opportunity to gain influence, power, wealth. Like infants, spiritually immature Christians and churches are unable to discern the dangers of those who come to them as wolves in sheep's clothing. And so they're blown everywhere. Every YouTube video that pops up on their Facebook, every chain email that has the ring of truth, it's true. But spiritually mature people know the truth. In fact, they speak the truth in love to one another. That's the... That's the uh, safeguard against spiritual immaturity is when Christians speak the truth in love to one another. When we gently, kindly, lovingly bring the truth of God's word to each other and say, hey, I see this in your life, but this is what God says. What should we do? Is God's word wrong or is your life out of alignment with where he wants you to be? That is Jesus' plan for building his church. Gifting each of us in different ways so that we all together are speaking the truth in love to one another. So that we attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. To the full measure of the stature of Christ. So we grow up in every way into the head. That is the goal. In other words, we need each other. We need meaningful, personal relationships with other Christians. With the gifts that Jesus has given them can be used for our maturity. The worst thing in the world, and I'll say this as one who benefits from it, 
is the individualized Christian faith many of us have adopted. Where we come to church and get our fill, read our Bible in the morning to get pumped up, but have no meaningful relationships with other Christians in our lives. And so what Paul says is that Jesus' plan for building his church is equipping and gifting each individual Christian with unique gifts so that we work together and build up the body of Christ. So this morning, don't allow your humility, your self-esteem, your self-image to tell you that you can't make a difference for the kingdom of God. You have the resources within you to promote the unity that Paul's talking about here, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Jesus has given you gifts for ministry in the body. The question this morning is whether you're going to be like the Gregory of Christmas 361 or Easter 362. Will you avoid the responsibility that's been given to you, the privilege of building up the body, or you invest your time and your talents in the people of God? If you do, this is what will happen. You'll seek out opportunities to serve others. You'll seek out opportunities to serve others. That means maybe you need to volunteer to help us out with our tech team. Every week, somebody's in the sound booth. Every week, Scott's in the sound booth. Let's just call it what it is. Scott's in the sound booth, making sure people online can watch our service, making sure we know what words to sing. He needs some help. Maybe you have what it takes. Maybe you've been spiritually gifted to run computers, and you need to volunteer to help. Yeah, see, son, no, that ain't me. Jesus gifted me differently than that. Maybe you need to volunteer to cut the grass on a Saturday or serve as a greeter so that when people come in our church on Sunday morning, they're met with a smiling face behind a mask. Maybe it means getting trained to be a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it means answering God's call in your life to be a deacon. But seek out opportunities to serve other Christians. You know, I think most of the time, the kind of things we're talking about don't come with a name tag. Hi, Brad, pastor. But said, it's using the gifts God's give us to invest in our kids, sitting down on the couch with them and talking to them about Jesus. It means calling friends on the phone, being vulnerable and honest, asking for advice and prayer, confessing sins one to another that they'll be forgiven. That's what we're talking about. Seek out opportunities to develop the relationships where the gifts Jesus has given you can flow naturally. You know, maybe you don't know what your gifts are, and you need to take a spiritual gifts inventory, see if you can get some direction on the ways God has gifted you. If you go to our website, cbcluling.com bulletin, down at the very bottom, there's a link to a spiritual gifts inventory. Take you a little while, but uh, you can even scroll down to the bottom, put my email in there, brad at cbcluling.com, and I'll get the results, and I'll say, hey, let's put you to work right here. And uh, we'll get you uh, an opportunity to use your gifts in service to others. But you know what it'll also mean? If you really want to do this and follow through using the gifts Jesus has given you, it's going to mean you give up the individualistic spirituality that isolates and divides us from one another. The attitude that I've said up here, you've heard me say it. If you want to grow spiritually, I really was challenged by this this week. I've said it. If you want to grow spiritually, the best thing you can do is read your Bible every day. I believe that. If you want to grow spiritually, if you want to know God more, you've got to read the Bible. But I don't know if you noticed when Paul lays out Jesus' plan to build the church, he didn't say anything about having a quiet time every day. 
He said that Jesus has given each of us gifts, and we use those to build each other up. A lot of danger is done when we huddle up in our corner for our quiet time, read the Bible and think that's good enough for me, and then go about our lives without any meaningful change. The only way the Bible is going to take root in our lives is if it's lived out in relationships with other Christians. According to Paul, we need teachers. We need guides. We need people who are going to correct our blind spots, bring clarity when we're confused. We need the church, and we need each other. So during this season of isolation, let's renew our commitment to do everything in our power to overcome the impulse to make it all about me and Jesus and reconnect with each other. Will you pray with me?